You're listening to the All Truth is God's Truth program. In God's creation, all truth belongs to Him. Therefore, as Christians, we must connect all truth back to our triune God in light of His inerrant Word and His creating, sustaining, and redeeming work. I'm your host, Jared Moore. Church, join me in your copy of God's Word in Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. And we're looking at how, <clears throat> how Christ is the only one who can purify our evil consciences. We've been going through um, a study over our conscience, and the Bible mentions our consciences often. But just as a way of introduction, our, our consciences are the inner courts of our hearts that hold us accountable to the right and wrong that we believe. When I was uh, first saved as a teenager, oftentimes we would follow our hearts while, you know, we would say, I feel bad for this, I don't feel bad for that, and thus we would kind of base our morality on our consciences. But the problem is, is that your conscience is only good at judging you if it is well informed by the Holy Spirit through Scripture. In other words, if you don't know something is wrong, you will not feel bad for doing it. You will, feel, will not feel bad for participating in it. And if you've told your conscience to be quiet, eventually it will be. And that's why people can fly planes into buildings um, and think that they're glorifying God. Um, I mean, that's why people can participate in heinous sin and uh, trot out a, a Bible verse when it's convenient. Um, you know, when people do not submit to the Word of God in its entirety, or when they affirm Jesus as Savior, but they do not adopt His ethic, they end up doing heinous evil in the name of God. But the Bible teaches us that God can purify our consciences. We need... Jesus, sin has warped all creation, including our consciences. As Hebrews 10.22 says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You know, apart from turning to Christ to cleanse our evil consciences, they will not be biblically informed by the Holy Spirit to where our consciences can accurately and faithfully judge us and keep us from harm, and spur us to loving obedience and faithfulness to God. And so Christ is the only one who can purify our consciences. We cannot do it. Our good works cannot do it. You know, th this is why it's so important that we read the Word of God and study the Word of God. It's good to do, you know, various Bible studies. It's good to read commentaries. It's good to read workbooks. And the various Christian books that y'all read are good if they're in lockstep with Scripture, but nothing can replace to reading the Word of God. We need to read the Word of God before we read anything else. Because only God's Word, as the Holy Spirit applies that Word to us, can rightfully inform our consciences. So why is Christ the only way, the only one who can purify our consciences? Well, first... He's the only one who can because he's the only one who can secure our eternal redemption. Now, we're going to be reading in Hebrews 9, 
And I'm going to read uh, verses 1 through 10, and then we'll continue for the rest of the chapter. But Hebrews 9, verse 1 says, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which where the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. Verse 7, But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body, imposed until the time of Reformation. So verses 1 through 5 refer to the tabernacle as a, a copy or a type, a shadow of the true holy place in heaven. So in that first section, you had the lampstand, you had the table, the bread of the presence, and in the second section, behind the curtain, there's a most holy place. You had the golden altar of incense. You know, it symbolized the prayers of God's priests, God's people, the atoning sacrifice going up to God. Had the Ark of the Covenant, which symbolized God's throne, God's special presence ruling and reigning with Israel. You know, inside the Ark, the golden urn containing manna, which symbolized God's provision, His providence for His people. Inside the ark also was Aaron's rod that budded. It symbolized God providing a line of priests to intercede for the people. And inside the ark were the tablets of the covenant. Y'all know that is the Ten Commandments. Above the ark were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat, and they represented God's glory. So to summarize everything that's there in the tabernacle, all of these, these items, they represented God's presence or God's provision. Now, it represented these things, but Jesus actually provides these things. In verse 6, you see that the priests would go into the first section. They would do these ritual duties. And then in verse 7, you see that only the high priest would go into the most holy place behind the curtain in the second section. And he would go there once per year to atone for the sins of the people. Offer blood also for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. In verse 8 and 9, you see that the point of these differing sections was to show two realities. The first section represents this life, where Christ offers Himself. So Christ offered Himself on the cross in this world, but then the most holy place, the second section, represents God's throne room in heaven, God's special presence. Christ went there and atoned for the sins of His people. So the high priest was a type, a shadow of the true high priest, Jesus Christ. So when we look at that, when we think of the tabernacle, when we think of the Old Testament sacrificial system, we need to look at that and realize 
that just as that could not take away the sins of the people, it could not purify their consciences. I mean, you want to know why Israel would be obedient and then disobedient, obedient and then disobedient to where God is saying, look, if you weren't my covenant people, I'd wipe you off the face of the earth. It is because the Holy Spirit had not worked in their hearts in the same way in the new covenant. In other words, they had not been given a new spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit was obviously working in their hearts, but there's something distinct about the new covenant concerning the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit through Christ. So the high priest in the Old Testament could not take away anyone's sin because he had sin himself. He had to atone for himself. So a sinner cannot take away other sinners' sins. So the purpose of these rituals was to send us running to the one who would fulfill them. So the sacrificial system, we need a perfect sacrifice, right? The high priest system, we need a better high priest who doesn't have any sin to atone for, but can actually take away the sins of others. And that's what we have in Jesus Christ. He's the only one who can truly redeem our consciences or purify them or give them the right information to where they can accurately judge us. So with that said, look at verse look at verse number 11. Look at verse number 11, and this is where we'll start. So the first point is that only Jesus can secure our eternal redemption. Our eternal redemption. Because only He went into God's presence to atone for our sin. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, Christ entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So to summarize, Christ is a better high priest than the Old Testament high priest. Christ can actually purify us. He can actually purify our consciences. And so what the Bible is emphasizing here is that, I mean, this is why when you get into the new, further into the New Testament, in, into Paul's letters, you realize he says that no one can judge a Christian, that an unbeliever cannot accurately judge a Christian because they don't have the purified, regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in them. He gets on in 1 Corinthians, Paul gets on to the Corinthian Christians going to secular courts to judge one another in disputes in the church. He says, don't you know we'll judge angels? What are you doing? But it's because of this reality that Christ has purified the church. He has worked in Christians. In verse 12, Christ entered that true holy place. He didn't go with the blood of goats and calves. He went with His own blood to secure an eternal redemption. Not a temporary one, but an eternal redemption. And that is what we need so we can purify our consciences forever. The second thing is, in verses 13 through 14, Jesus is the only one who can purify us from dead works. To where we're no longer trusting in our dead works to save us. You see this in verses 13 and 14. If the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons, which isn't that fascinating, the sprinkling of defiled persons, referring to the Old Testament high priest. 
The sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So you see the emphasis here that in the Old Testament, the, the sprinkling of the blood of animals by the high priests, it did set Israel apart from the surrounding nations. Sanctification does not mean cleanse from sin in this context. It means setting them apart as Yahweh worshipers. In verse 14, you see that Jesus, His blood through the eternal Spirit, actually purifies our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. You know, all the works accomplished by mankind are dead because all men, women, and children are dead apart from Christ, spiritually dead. Yet our consciences either accuse or excuse us based on our works and based on a limited knowledge. And if our consciences do not have God's Word, then they do not have enough information to accurately excuse us. God has only given the whole world enough information for our consciences to condemn us, according to Romans 1, but not enough to save us. That's why we must go preach the gospel. You know, without trusting in Christ for salvation, the world cannot be saved. We must go and share the good news of Jesus with others. We must be unashamed of the gospel. And, and look, it, we're, we're to the point in American history where it's going to cost you to proclaim Jesus. I mean to really preach Jesus. I don't mean the sugar-coated Jesus that the world loves. I mean the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible who said, if any man would follow me, he must deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. So you have to deny yourself. America does not like to deny herself. America wants to live however she wants and have Jesus and salvation too. But that, that means that Americans are Lord of their lives, and that is not salvation. You know, what we learned last night, we talked about how Jesus is the true Davidic eternal king, meaning he came to be a king. He didn't come to where we would rule our own lives. He came so that we would bow to him and serve him as the king of kings and lord of lords. If you want to be lord of your life, you don't want the Jesus of Christmas. You want the American Jesus. You want the, the Jesus that will give you what you want. Where you're up here, he's down here, he's more like a genie in a lamp there to grant your wishes. That is not the Jesus of the Bible. Anyone who would come after Jesus has to deny himself, pick up his cross and follow Christ. That is what he has called us to. That is what we must celebrate. Because you'll find that you are richer following Jesus, though you may be broke. You are healthier following Jesus, though you may be sick. Jesus is of eternal worth, and this world is passing away. We've got to hold loosely to this world and tightly to Christ, because only He provides an eternal salvation, eternal redemption. Only He can purify us forever. The third thing I want you to see is that Jesus is the only mediator of the new covenant. In verse 15, says that he's the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. So promised where? Well, in the Old Testament. Uh, Jesus is the fulfillment. 
since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. See, the Old Testament, the law, demands perfection. None of us are perfect, so the Old Covenant condemns every one of us. We are all condemned under the Old Covenant. But under the New Covenant, that those who repent and believe in Christ will be eternally saved, eternally purified. If you trust in Him, you're cleansed forevermore. You belong to Him forevermore. He is your Lord. He redeems us from our transgressions, from our guilt. Let's read on in this chapter. For where a will is involved, in verse 16, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law has been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, nor is it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So explaining this in verse 16, a will is only applied when the person dies. And Jesus promised, imagine Jesus promised eternal life in his will. And you, you have this in the Gospels, right? The promises that he made. Eternal life to those who believe in him. In verses 18 through 22, the new covenant is inaugurated with Christ's blood. And look, when, when the Bible refers to Jesus' blood, it, it's talking about his death. I mean, it's not talking about, like, you know, him sprinkling blood. It's talking about his death and what blood represented, right? And it represents his death. The point is that the only way to forgive sins is by the death of, of the sinner or the death of Christ or to pay for your sin. Either Jesus paid for our sin or we pay for our sin for all eternity. In verse 23 through 24, the copies needed the blood of bulls and goats on earth. The sacrifices were necessary because they were an act of faith from God's people to Yahweh. In other words, it displayed their faith. But they looked ahead to a greater promise. I mean, this is why you have Old Testament prophecy and a longing for another king like David 
longing for a true high priest who would not be wicked. You know, Christ went into the actual place, into the presence of God, and offered himself on our behalf. And he didn't have to keep doing it, according to verse 25 and 26. He didn't have to keep offering himself over and over like the high priest in the Old Testament. He offered himself once for all. And so he is able to cleanse our consciences precisely because he offers an eternal salvation, an eternal redemption. In verse 27 28, because of what Christ has done for those who trust in him, putting away our sin through his sacrifice, when he returns, he's not returning to judge his people. He's returning to save his people and to judge his enemies, according to verses 27 and 28. So in conclusion, let's look at some um, application. How do we apply this? Flip over to chapter 10, and let's read verses 19 through 25 together. And I believe this helps us apply these principles that have been mentioned. So Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 25 Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so to begin there in verses 19 through 21, we need to enjoy this salvation through Christ by realizing what he has done for us. You know, our, our culture and often the pulpits in America are very weak when it concerns doctrinal preaching. In other words, speaking the truth about who God is, who Jesus is, and meditating on those realities, and then seeking to live and apply what the Word of God says. You have to know God and know Him intimately before you apply His Word. People are, are often, they, they jump too fast to what must I do when Christianity is ultimately about what God has done for us and out of that, we live for Him. We seek to live the Christian life because of what God has done for us. You see in verse 19 that through Christ we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. And this is what Jesus meant when he said, I go to prepare a place for you. He didn't mean he's he's up there building mansions. He meant his actual going to heaven prepared the way for you and me to go be where he is. His actual going means we get to go too. His actual entrance into the holy place means we get to enter the holy place. The Old Testament, only the high priest entered and he entered once a year. Well, now, if you're a Christian, you get to go to the Holy of Holies because you are in Christ, cleansed by Christ. The high priest has entered there and you are in him. And there's a real sense where you are in Christ, seated at the right hand of God today. So we do not enter the holy places through our own good works. 
We enter through Christ who has purified us, purified our consciences. In verse 20, Jesus opened a new and living way through His flesh. This means that we do not open the way to heaven. Through our own sacrifices, through our own good works, it's only through Him. In verse 21, Jesus is our high priest, our mediator over the house of God. This means that we are not our own high priests. This means that there are no earthly priests between you and God. We do not trust in other men or other women. We trust in the high priest. We don't need another. In verse 22, because Christ has died for us, because He's prepared the way for us into heaven, because He's our high priest, our mediator, and because He has cleansed our consciences with His death, and God the Holy Spirit has washed us with the pure water of His Word, let us draw near with a true heart of full assurance of faith. So we should be assured of our faith if we believe these truths about Jesus. We should not be fearful or reluctant in our relationship with God. Instead, we should approach Him as a loving Father. You know, if you've studied any of church history, you know who Martin Luther is, who nailed his 95 Theses. And ultimately what brought the Reformation was the fact that Martin Luther had a guilty conscience. He was constantly annoying his priest. He would go back and he, he was constantly introspecting himself, looking into his own heart, and what he kept finding there was sin. It didn't matter how many Hail Marys he did. It didn't matter how many prayers he did. It didn't matter how penitent he was. He found sin in his heart continually. And then he read in God's Word that the just live by faith. And he realized that those who are justified or declared righteous, it's not through works. It's not through being good enough. It's through trusting in Jesus Christ alone and He gives you His righteousness. And so it's the righteousness of another coming into us that saves us. That is very freeing. Because it means that on your best day, you're unworthy of God, but in Christ, even on your worst day, you're worthy of God. The reality about union with Christ means that where Christ is, we already are. That His inheritance that He deserves, we get, we receive. We are treated as sons and daughters of the living God as much as Jesus is. That is what eternal salvation means. So we shouldn't be fearful or reluctant in our relationship with God. We should approach His throne with boldness and joy. God is not sitting waiting for us to fail. On the contrary, He associates His name with us. He calls us His children. He calls us His son's bride. He calls us His own. In verse 23, we should also hold fast to confessing that Jesus is Lord and the only way of salvation because God is faithful. And he, if He is appointed to save those who repent and believe in Christ, He surely will. Because of what Christ has done for us, we need to encourage one another to love more. Because of what Christ has done for us, we need to encourage one another to do more good works. You know, we've got a, a new year coming. People talk about New Year's resolutions. May we be resolved to love more and to do more good works. In verse 25, because of what Christ has done for us, we need to gather together to worship. And we need to teach one another, learn from one another, 
and encourage one another. We, we do not need to neglect gathering together to worship. You know, with this new year, I want to encourage you to look at your calendar over the next year and ask yourself how many worship services you plan to be a part of, you plan to attend. You know, every Sunday is the Lord's Day. And so we need to gather with other believers on that day to worship if we are able to gather. And he says in verse 25 that we need to gather even more as Christ's return is fast approaching. And so if you believe he could return at any moment, then you need to find yourself worshiping with other believers on the Lord's Day, Sundays. Notice that the motivation for gathering for worship is not the pews, the music, whether or not you like the preacher, whether or not somebody is singing a special song. These are all temporary and subjective. They do not last for eternity. They change from year to year. The motivating factor for worship is that Christ is Lord, and look at what He has done for us. And let's come celebrate that reality. That, that's why I try to start every worship service here with saying, we're here to celebrate Christ. Because that's an objective truth. It doesn't matter what's going on in your life. It doesn't matter how you feel. You know, all those subjective things that keep us from being faithful to God in our worship. All those things go to the wayside because the reason why we gather is because He's alive. He's alive. And He's alive when everything's going well in my life and when it's not. He's alive and He's interceding for me. And that is why we gather for worship. And so as we look ahead to this new year, may we contemplate and think on that reality. And may we worship because of who He is and what He has done. Objective truths, not subjective. Not based on how I feel. The biggest lie of our culture right now, the biggest false gospel, is that you are your feelings. And that in order to be true to yourself, you have to follow your feelings. When the Bible teaches, you only need to follow the Word of God. If your feelings are contrary to the Word of God, then that is flesh. That is evil. That is wicked. You do not need to follow it. You need to reject it. You need to reject it. You need to submit to the Word of God. Where you're going to find eternal joy is not in the mirror. It's not in your feelings. It is in Jesus Christ. He is the one we must follow. So as our musicians come, how will we respond to these glorious truths? Are we trusting in Christ alone this morning? You know, He's the only one who can save us. He's the only one who can cleanse our evil consciences. And if we're trusting in Him, then He has cleansed us and He is cleaning us up. Let us find ourselves opening the Word of God and studying the Word of God that our consciences will have the right information to judge us and to hold us accountable as the Holy Spirit applies the Word to our lives. So let us come and adore Him afresh and anew. You know, our good works need to be built on Christ. They do not need to be, they do not need to be in place of Him. And so when we're tempted to sin, let us remind ourselves what Christ has done for us and therefore turn from sin. And let's enjoy the fact that we have a Savior. Amen. Let's all stand and sing and respond how God may be leading you this morning. I've been persuaded, seen at it, I see the Savior, I see His grace is amazing. I persevered to the 